Well, amen. Good morning, King's Cross. My name is Clint, one of the pastors of this church. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, to our visitors, especially if it's your first time being with us, we're happy that you're here with us and uh, would come and join as we continue our study and march through the Gospel of Matthew, even as we come towards the end of Matthew and finish up even the final hours of our Lord Jesus' life, even looking at uh, his uh, impending death, burial, and resurrection. So again, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. It's good that you're here. Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help, and we'll jump into the text. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ Jesus, our King and Lord, our great and gracious Savior, the one who is able to save from the uttermost, even to the outermost, the one who was willing to lay down his life to suffer and die, the one who you raised from the dead. It's through Christ, this Christ, we pray by your Spirit. Send help to us even now. Explain the glories even of Calvary. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you'd walk the streets of Jerusalem during the week of Jesus' death. What would you have done? Who would you have been with? What would you have been feeling? Do you think that that week and even those days and those dark hours, you would indeed have blood on your hands? Today we continue this study through Matthew and we see Jesus handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor, to be tried. As we follow Christ on this road to the cross, it is clear that Matthew, in this account, wants us to see there are many people with blood on their hands. There's Peter with his denial. Judas with his betrayal. Pilate with all kinds of political excuses. The religious leaders with envy. The religious crowds with foolishness. And again, Barabbas with his undeserved release. So as we do this and as we walk through these characters and the groups of these characters, I want you to be thinking, and, and the big idea as we see this morning is seeing Jesus' own trial should lead us to tremble at the overwhelming guilt of everyone's sin and marvel at the overwhelming grace of God in Christ. Following Jesus on this trial should lead us to tremble at the overwhelming guilt of everyone's sin and marvel at the overwhelming grace of God in Christ. So I just want to walk through even these six characters. And as we walk through these characters and look into what they were doing that great week in those great hours, in these dark moments, I want you to think and ask yourself the question, can I identify with them? Would I be with them? Would I be like that? See where you identify, where you think you do not identify. First, let's look at Peter. Chapter 26, actually, verse 69 to 75. The apostle Peter. Now, Jesus has been arrested in the garden of Gethsemane. The guards have led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, and there was this kind of sham trial at, in the middle of the night that shouldn't be happening the way it was happening. But then from this point now, they've, they've, given, they've bound him up. They're going to take him to be arrested. And Peter has told and promised Jesus, Jesus, I will follow you even to death. Even if everyone else abandoned you, not me. I will die with you. And up to this moment, he's kept his word. But Jesus told him, I tell you this very night, you will all abandon me. So Christ has promised. He's let him know just a few hours earlier, no, you will deny. You will abandon. Peter's like, no, not me. And then we come to Peter's great denial. Now, I need you to know, as we jump into Matthew's account of this denial, there were a lot more details, and it happened a lot slower than Matthew's account reads. 
So he kind of races through it because primarily what he's trying to do is show you that King Jesus has sovereign control and everything he's doing, including this denial, is of, of Scripture. That's what Matthew's always doing with us, is d- demonstrating King Jesus. That's what he's doing throughout his entire account, even with Peter. So it moves pretty rapidly, but we'll point out and look at a few things. Verse 69 of chapter 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. It is painful to watch Peter, Jesus' most passionate and loyal follower, do just as Jesus predicted. And in the moment of great pressure, in Christ's moment of great need, deny his Lord. But notice just a few things about Peter's digression into this denial. First, notice the first denial. Matthew wants you to highlight, or he wants to highlight, and wants to show you, it's just a simple servant girl. This is not a serious physical threat at this moment. Like it's merely one servant girl alone who comes up and highlights that, that Peter is an outsider like Jesus. You were with Jesus, the Galilean. And Peter just simply denies it. I do not know what you mean. But then because of this interaction and this negative response and this negative interaction, he goes out to the entrance. So he had come in, but physically he's beginning to slowly remove himself physically from Christ in proximity. Even he does it spiritually and relationally, slowly backing away. Then the second servant girl comes up to him, again, posing no real physical threat. But she also highlights that he's an outsider with Jesus. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. This time he intensifies his denial, uses an oath. I do not know the man. So not only is he backing away from Jesus physically and denying him relationally, now he's violating the very teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not use oaths. The only people who need to use an oath are those who you can't trust. Christ says, my followers are those who you can trust their words. They don't have to add anything to it. So even at this point, he's distancing himself physically, relationally. And now he's even denying Christ's own teaching, denying the word. And then the bystanders. Similarly, they say, you are one of them. Nobody wants to be called one of them. And they say, you're an outsider with an accent. Your accent betrays you. You're from the north. We can just tell how about how you're talking. And the northerner's like, no, we can tell from the south how y'all talking. (laughs) But they're they're highlighting, you're an outsider. Your accent betrays you. You've been with that Galilean, that one from Nazareth. You've got the accent. We understand you're associated with the Christ. And at this moment, he goes from a simple lie to lying with an oath to now lying with a curse. Every step away from Jesus was further from the ways of Jesus, relationship with Jesus, and proximity to Jesus. Christ will go to the cross totally alone. Even Peter has denied him. And so I ask you the question, can you identify with Peter and even the disciples who are absent from this scene because they've already abandoned him? 
Maybe at first glance you think, oh, I don't think so. I've never denied him publicly in that way. Have you ever walked away from Jesus for a season? Never stepped out on him? What did that slow drift away from Christ look like for you? Have you ever been afraid to represent his name when someone else bashed it? Have you ever been unfaithful to him when he's always been faithful to you? Have you ever distanced yourself from Christ because you feared for your safety? Maybe it wasn't your physical safety. Perhaps you drifted away from Jesus because you're worried what a friend might think of you for following Jesus. You ever said or done something you swore never again will I do or say that? Only to do and say it again. Surely every follower of Christ can identify with backing away from Christ and your commitment to him and his word in moments of great pressure. Surely there are all moments for any follower of Christ that we've been in when someone should have stepped up and spoken for Christ and what he teaches. But you knew. You knew people knew you were associated with him. They looked at you and you said nothing. Surely we've all been embarrassed by our Jesus accent at one point or another. Trying to separate ourselves from Christ and his people. Surely we've all been tempted to Avoid being one of them. Surely we've all cared more about fitting in than repping him. And let us be warned, we should never say, well, I would never do that. Peter said that just hours before he did that. So lest you think you're better than Peter, you ought to have the humility that says, except for the grace of God, there go I, as many have said. There's no temptation that you're just suddenly too good for. Peter himself has denied his Lord. Surely we can all identify with Peter's denial. Second character, Judas. Now chapter 27 opens up in verses 1 and 2 with the religious leaders binding up Jesus and taking him to Pilate to be tried by the Roman authorities, just like Jesus predicted back in chapter 26, verse 2. Now we'll consider those religious leaders in just a moment, but for now, again, let's focus on Judas. Look at chapter 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Judas realized he messed up bad. He betrayed an innocent man. His guilt and shame are overwhelming him. And so he tries to undo his error so that he doesn't feel that guilt and shame. He tries to return the money he accepted to betray Jesus, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, that intimate place where Jesus would be praying and where they spent time together. He says, wait, 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 take this money back, take this money back, take this money back. I've sinned, I betrayed an innocent man. Notice he admits his sin and he admits Jesus' innocence. He wants them to reverse their decision. He does not want to be on the hook for being the one who betrayed Jesus and Jesus being killed because of him. But it is too late. The deed is done. They don't care about Judas nor the truth. They just want Jesus dead. And Judas gave them what they need to accomplish what they want to accomplish. And so Judas throws down the money and ends up hanging himself. Now, what do we learn from Judas's betrayal? He played a very unique role in redemptive history. So I don't want you to ask the same unqualified question. Can you identify with him like I'm asking you with the other characters? But there are warnings for us. As we think about Judas, as we've talked about even over the last month or so in these sermons, we learn a number of lessons. Lesson number one, we learn there are fake followers of Jesus. That's always been the case. 
Those who pose to follow God, but don't actually follow God. Judas is a terrible warning that it's possible to appear to love and follow Christ while being a betrayer in heart. But the main lesson I want us to think about, because we've talked about that regularly over the last few sermons, is there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, after having to write a difficult letter and confront the Christians in Corinth, says in verse 9, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, my letter, or his letter grieved them, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So contrast here, which I think is why Matthew inserts Judas's uh, death here in this part of the text, which is out of chronological order, even on the events of this night. I think he inserts it here because he wants us to compare and contrast Peter and, Ju and Judas. So Peter went out and wept bitterly after he denied his Lord. There was a brokenness. There was a repentance. There was a Psalm 51 David-like prayer against you and you only have I sinned, O God, and done what is wrong in your sight. There is a confession, I've messed up, I've sinned against you. Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. This is what we see from Peter. We know this because later in Matthew's gospel, at the very end, just before the Great Commission, we read, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. So Peter was restored to fellowship with Christ. We know from John's account what that restoration looked like. Jesus asked Peter three different times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? tend my sheep. Like, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Christ restored him three times, giving the opportunity. You've, you denied me three times. Let me give you the opportunity to affirm your love for me three times and go forth and do what I've called you to do. So there was a brokenness and repentance that led to salvation and restoration and relationship with Christ. Peter had a godly sorrow that led to repentance and salvation without regret. But Judas Instead of repenting and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation or seeking to live a life that bears fruit in keeping with repentance, instead goes and hangs himself. He's overcome with remorse and guilt and shame. He knows nothing of the Savior's saving grace which leads to repentance. He's got a worldly grief that produces death, sadly, through suicide. And that leads me to a third point that we learned from Judas. There comes a point when it is too late to turn to Jesus. There's a terrible danger to tasting, hearing, and even enjoying some of the benefits of being a follower of Jesus without being a follower of Jesus. Judas, no doubt, was trying to right a wrong, but not out of a repentant heart that wanted to be right with God. Perhaps he just wanted to get rid of the guilt and shame, had zero interest in God himself. I just don't want guilt and shame. This will remove that from me. Perhaps he believed, as others did in his day, that this act would appease the God's anger. Either way, it wasn't repentance, for his suicide demonstrated that he rebelled all the way into the very end. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that suicide is an unforgivable sin. A true believer who sins by committing suicide doesn't lose genuine salvation. But Judas never demonstrated true repentance and faith. He never turned to Christ as Lord, but as far as we can tell, he died believing Jesus was a rabbi, as we talked about a few weeks ago. Godly grief leads to repentance, to right fellowship with God. Worldly grief leads to death. Friends, be warned from Judas' example. Betraying Jesus leads to spiritual suffocation. Don't put it off to another day. 
There can be a conviction and there ought to be a repentance that leads to salvation. Don't let there be conviction that leads to worldly grief and death. No, today is the day of salvation, the Apostle Paul says. We have warnings all throughout the scriptures. Hebrews 14, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. If you currently hear the Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God, calling out sin in your life, calling to repent and run to Christ, don't put that off. Do it immediately, even in your heart, even right now in your chair. Learn from Judas. At some point, there comes a moment where it is too late. You may say, yes, but what about the thief on the cross? Can the Lord save in the ninth hour? Absolutely. Our God is gracious and kind and can save even in the last moment. But as J.C. Ryle highlights, one penitent thief was saved in the hour of death that no man might despair, but only one so that no one might presume. Friend, don't put it off. You don't know if tomorrow's coming. Turn to Christ even today. Flee from sin. Flee from or to the Savior. Don't identify with Judas. Thirdly, Pilate. Now, Pilate was the Roman governor. Rome kept authority over the death penalty so that everybody underneath their role, they had ultimate power. So for Jesus to be put to death, they had to go to Rome. Now, now Pilate has zero spiritual or religious interest in Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't care about the Jews. He doesn't care about, he don't care about their worship. His job is to protect Rome. His concern is about Rome and, the, and political power and control and authority of Rome. So the Jewish leaders have to come to him and convince him Jesus needs to die. In order to get, convince him Jesus must die, they got to convince him Jesus is a threat to Rome. He doesn't care if Jesus claims to be the son of God. What he's concerned about is Jesus a threat to Rome. And so they have to come and say, hey, listen, Jesus is calling himself king. And suddenly they act like their, their allegiance is to Caesar. There's no king but Caesar. And this Jesus called himself king, Pilate. You better put him to death. He's trying to overthrow Caesar. You better do something about this. That's the interaction we see. Chapter 27, verse 11. So Jesus stood before the governor, that is Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, in Christ saying, you have said so, he's affirming that he is the promised king. And we learn from John's account that there's a little further conversation in details where he's saying, hey, but my kingdom's not like an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom. And at some level, Pilate kind of has this interaction like, oh, I don't think you're a threat to Rome. I'm not even sure what you're talking about in this heavenly kingdom. But he has this interaction. And so then he's like, ah, like, and kind of turns to the crowd. And they're throwing out all these accusations, hurling all these insults about Christ. So he turns to look at Christ like, do you hear what they're saying about you? And Jesus remains silent. This astonished Pilate. He's amazed Jesus isn't defending himself. Because Pilate's a, a politician. He understands, I've got authority. I have power. They're accusing you. They want you dead. You could talk to me. I don't even think you're that big of a deal. I'd get you off the hook. Why aren't you saying something? Don't you know who I am and how much power I have to not get you killed? Even in John's account, we read of that, John 19, 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus is like, oh, time out, Pilate. You think, <laughs> you think you're in charge? Yeah, you're not. You're not. I'm going to stay silent. You're not in charge. 
So at this point, Pilate begins scheming. They want Jesus' blood. He sees no reason to give them Jesus' blood. So he starts thinking, man, what can I do in this scenario to keep the people at rest, to make sure there's not an insurrection and a riot against Rome? But I don't think this guy should die. What can I? Oh, there's a tradition we have this time of year during Passover. Verse 15. Now with the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was still sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Now, again, it's tradition for Rome to release a prisoner that the Jews wanted to set free. And again, this helped kind of political power and negotiation and keeping the peace. So he grabs Barabbas, this notorious criminal, and thinks, if I put this evil criminal up against this man who's claiming to have some heavenly kingdom, surely they're going to let Jesus go, and I'm not going to have to kill him. Luke's account tells us Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Even as a pagan, Pilate sees Jesus is no threat to the political rule that Rome has. But the Jewish leaders are obviously envious. So Pilate's a politician. He knows, uh... Y'all want him dead. He's not, it's not actually that he's a threat to anything that I'm concerned about. Y'all are envious of his power. He's got some sway on your people in ways you don't like. That's what, even Pilate as a pagan understands this religious posturing and stuff is more political than it is even spiritual. These leaders are concerned and envious. On top of that, in the middle of it all, Pilate's wife sends him a, a private message and says, hey, I had a dream about that righteous man. Don't, don't mess with him. Let it go. Let it ride. And, and in, uh, in Rome, this thought would be the, like the divine would communicate through a dream. So she's like, look, I had a terrible dream. I've suffered greatly. Do not mess with this righteous man. Even the pagans are like, look, this dude ain't done nothing wrong. So Pilate thinks, I'll just put Jesus up against Barabbas, and then this will resolve the problem. But instead, the Jewish leaders stir up the crowd all the more, persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus even through crucifixion, the gruesome execution reserved for only the worst criminals. And Pilate's like, wow, what makes him deserving of this? He sees no reason, yet they yell all the louder. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands symbolically before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Pilate sets the wicked, thieving murderer loose, and has Jesus scourged on his way to the cross. Now, this word means Jesus was stripped and tied to a post. Then he was beaten with leather cords that had pieces of bone and metal at the end of them. This punishment is too terrifyingly graphic for me to describe to you because of the children in the room what it would do to the victim. But it would weaken the victim, sometimes even kill the victim, but weaken them such that the crucifixion would make sure to kill them. 
But by the end of this, this bloody sport that came to be, the body was nearly unrecognizable with lots of internal organs and bones exposed. So Jesus was treated like this and then delivered to be crucified. Now, what do we learn from Pilate's politicking? Can you identify with Pilate? The confused, intrigued, and then blame-shifting pagan. Did you notice Pilate's progression? He knew it was out of envy they delivered Christ up. He tried this political scheme to avoid the death of the innocent man. Then they cried for his death. He said, why, what evil has he done? They yelled louder. And so he said, as he saw, he was gaining nothing. Then he washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Wrong. His sin might be passive, but it isn't innocent. He wants political power. He thinks this man is innocent. He has the ability to prevent this death from happening. He chooses not to because he wants power more than he wants what's right. He can wash his hands all he wants, but his commitment to political power means the blood of Jesus is on his hands too. Can you identify with Pilate? You ever avoided taking responsibility for your own sin by blaming it on the legitimate sin of others? Jesus again told Pilate, hey, their sin is worse than yours. <laughs> but by implication, you are sinning. <laughs> so yes, their sin was worse, but Pilate is sinning. Have you ever thought, mm, I'm going to justify my sin by blaming it on a sin I see as worse? It might be worse. That doesn't mean you're not guilty of sin. You ever ignored good counsel from others? like Pilate did from his wife? Have you ever ignored injustice when you had the power to do something about it? Has the desire for political power for your party ever led you to keep quiet when your candidates do something wrong? Have you ever sat back and watched someone bullied into tears? Have you ever laughed at a racist joke or listened willingly as someone gossips? Have you ever downplayed your sin as not that big of a deal compared to others? In your passivity, as you sit back in your blame shifting, can you identify with Pilate? Fourth character, this time a group, the religious leaders. Matthew chapter 27, verse 1 and 2, and then 6 through 8. Look at 1 and 2 again. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders, referred to as the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body of the people, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Chapter 27, verse 12, again, we saw that they accuse him. Again, we just mentioned in chapter 27, verse 18, Pilate was aware this was out of envy. So these wicked religious leaders want Jesus dead because his kingship threatens their power and control. They accuse the Son of God of evil because of their own envy. But I want, you to, I want to show you something that's interesting when religious leaders are false and evil. They actually still pretend to care about obeying the law. Look down at verse, chapter 27, verse 6 through 8. So after Judas has this interaction, throws down the money, goes and hangs himself. Look what we read in verse 6. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them in the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the, the potter, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. So they take the money used from Judas that, 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 that was uh, to betray Jesus, 
that's thrown down to buy a field to bury strangers in for outsiders and strangers, which actually proves to be a fulfillment of prophecies at some level from Jeremiah, but specifically from Zechariah chapter 11, 11 to 13. But do you see the wicked irony? They're worried about what's lawful in putting blood money back into the treasury. They're worried about blood money, but not the bloodshed. <laughs> so you're like, oh, that's blood money. We can't, but you're about to kill someone with that money. But you want to make sure it gets put in the right place and used the right way? Like, whack false religious leaders will act like they're doing super deep spiritual things, obeying the law, even while they're committing heinous evil. Sin blinds us to our own sin. And this is especially destructive in spiritual leaders. Consider the fruit of their spiritual leadership, even in our text for today. Their leadership, they're killing the Son of God out of envy. That's not a good religious leader when you kill God. <laughs> That's not rocket science, right? Good religious leaders point you to God, teach you how to follow God, not try to kill him. So their religious leadership, massive failure there. Secondly, their spiritual leadership ignores Judas's guilt and shame. And instead of leading him to repentance and reconciliation, he goes out and commits suicide. They fail in their leadership over Judas. They should have told Judas, no, 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 here's what you do. You make this right. You go to Christ and confess. You go let him, you go get this restored and made right. Let us help you do that. That's what a true and faithful leader would have done. Instead, they're like, ah, oh, what's that to us? We don't care. And it leads to Judas's death. Thirdly, their leadership incites the followers to join in on their sin. Again, you saw it in verse 25. And all the people, all of them answered, his blood be on us and our children. Can you identify with the religious leaders? You may feel like, ah, I'm safe on this one. Like I don't have a bunch of spiritual or religious authority. I don't have a huge political position. Have you ever been jealous of someone taking power, praise, or position from you? You compare yourself to other people a lot. Have you ever not received a promotion or an award or recognition you thought you deserved? This is their issue with Christ. He's going to get all kinds of attention and power and authority. They're envious of that. Have you ever been envious of someone else's power and attention and authority? Have you ever riled up people to hate the same people that you hate? Have you ever considered that complaining about the praise and attention you are getting or not getting is implying that if you were God, you would run things better than he does? Have you ever considered that God getting all the glory means you don't? And that being bothered by that is envy, just like these religious leaders if so, maybe you and I can identify with the religious leaders. Fifth character is the religious crowd. What about the crowds? What about the crowds? Religious crowds can be so fickle. And especially when religion and politics gets mixed together, just like we see in our text today. People can be so fickle. Why do I say that? Do you remember what happened when Christ entered into Jerusalem at the beginning of this week? What were the crowds doing? Matthew 20 what? Uh, 21 verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Verse 20 in our text today. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And what did they do? Crucify him. Hosanna in the highest. Put him on the cross. 
Religious and political crowds can be so fickle, so fickle. They've been persuaded by their leaders to destroy Jesus by shouting for him to be crucified. They're ready to condemn an innocent man, Jesus, while asking for the release of a guilty man, Barabbas. They're ready to riot and actually proclaim and even boldly say his blood be on us and on our children. Now, to be clear, this text has been wrongly used to incite anti-Semitism. Now, this does not mean all Jews forever. All of Jesus' disciples were Jewish. He himself was Jewish. But in this generation, when they say all this blood be on us and our children, this generation would see their city and the temple destroyed in A.D. 70 as a role of God's judgment for killing the Christ. Paul and Peter both make this clear in their sermons as recorded in Acts 3 and 13, respectively. But also I just want you to notice religious crowds are easily manipulated by politically-minded religious leaders. Let me say it again. Religious crowds are easily manipulated by politically-minded religious leaders. Angry crowds are often ignorant. Angry crowds are often blind to true justice. Loud crowds are seldom authentically concerned about the things of God. So can you identify with the religious crowd? Have you ever been led astray by a leader whom you thought knew what they were talking about? Ever had an angry, politically-minded religious leader stir up your anger even more? Ever watch Fox News, CNN, or MSNBC? (laughs) Don't worry, I got everybody. Everybody can laugh. (laughs) Just because a leader convinces you he's angry at the things you're angry at doesn't mean you can trust him. Doesn't mean he's concerned about the things of God. Angry thoughts often lead to foolish actions. Angry crowds are almost always ignorant. And you see this in our text today. Instead of good arguments, they just get louder. Why? What reason do you have for killing the man? Crucify him. They just yell louder. (laughs) So you get around people that just yell louder rather than having good arguments. Stop listening. (laughs) Please keep this in mind seriously as you engage in politics in the coming political season that's sure to be full of politically minded religious leaders that want you to yell with them. Can you identify with the religious crowd? Sixth, Barabbas, the guilty criminal. Now, we've already looked at him when we discussed Pilate, so there's nothing more to add about his character per se. He's a wicked criminal, an insurrectionist, a thief, a murderer. So maybe most of us are like, whew, okay, listen, I ain't robbed nobody. I haven't caught any kind of riot. Surely we're going to get through this one, right? Good luck. I didn't get through it. Maybe you will. I didn't. Can you identify with Barabbas? Haven't we all revolted against God's rule in our life? Doesn't that make us insurrectionists of the worst kind? Haven't we all attempted to take God's glory by living for our own glory? Doesn't that make us glory thieves? Haven't we all had anger in our hearts? And didn't our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount say anger in the heart is like murder in the heart? Don't we all deserve to be on the cross? D.A. Carson points out an interesting fact. Over in John's account, chapter 18, verse 40, Barabbas is called a Greek word that means a revolutionary or an insurrectionist. So we read in John 18, 40, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber is how it's translated. Later on in Matthew, Jesus is crucified between two criminals. You know what Jesus calls those, or what Matthew calls those criminals? Chapter 27, verse 38. Then two robbers, same Greek word, were crucified with him. One on the right hand and one on the left. Why is this a big deal? 
It's quite possible, if not probable. Pilate had three crosses ready that day. And that third cross was meant for Barabbas. It is definitely true that Christ died in place of Barabbas. But it is very possible that Barabbas was supposed to be on the middle cross and two partners in crime to his left and right. And the Jews said, give us Barabbas. And then Christ went in Barabbas's place and was set free. <laughs> Can you identify with Barabbas? Weren't you and I enemies of God? Didn't we deserve God's just judgment? But didn't Christ die in our place so that we could go free? Who do you most identify with? Now, I didn't give you the seventh character, but I have one more character for us to consider as we wrap up. The silent and scourged Savior. I think at this point, and I trust by the Spirit's help, at this point, it's evident that everyone has blood on their hands. If you could go back in time and be there, you would have blood on your hands too. So would I. We all do. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So any culture, any tribe, any tongue, any nation that would have been there and been around would have blood on their hands. Peter in his denial, Judas in his betrayal, Pilate in his politicking, the religious leaders in their envy, the angry crowd in their rioting and fickle foolishness, Barabbas in his unjust benefiting, there's blood on everybody's hands. But there is Jesus in the midst of it all, silent, suffering, and beaten beyond recognition. The sinless Son of God. He never denied his father like Peter denied him. He did not betray his father like Judas betrayed him. He never avoided responsibility for politicking the way Pilate did. For he had no sin and he didn't do politicking. He never led astray like the religious leaders did. He never succumbed to ignorant anger like the crowds did. And he never committed wickedness that made an enemy of God like Barabbas did. Can you identify with the son of suffering? Well, friends, the answer is no. None of us can. Because we have no idea what it's like to be totally sinless, totally innocent, totally righteous, and yet treated like you're the worst of criminals, worse than Barabbas. He was sinless, yet silent and scourged. Silent and scourged in our place. Why? Why did he suffer so? What did the prophet Isaiah tell us some 700 years prior? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet not opened his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he op opened not his mouth. He was silent because you and I are sinful. He's taking the accusations and the guilt and the shame that you and I deserve. He was silent. He was beat up because he came to save us from our sinfulness. He was beat unto a bloody pulp because of the wrath of God being poured out that we deserved. Yet he loved us enough to do this willingly to suffer in our place. So again, I ask you, can you identify with the holy, sinless son of suffering? No, we can't. He alone knows what that's like. We can identify with everybody else or at least anybody else that has blood on their hands. But can I blow your mind with good news this morning? Let me change the question. 
If you have faith in Christ, who does God most identify you with? His resurrected and reigning son. The good news of the gospel is not that you identify with Jesus, but that because of Jesus, God identifies you with Jesus. So we look through this story. If you have faith in Christ, understand when God looks upon you, he's not thinking, ah, that's like Pilate. Ah, that's like Peter. Ah, that's like Judas. Ah, that's like the crowds. Ah, that's like the leaders. Ah, that's like my son, the Lord Jesus. So if you're in Christ, the question is not who do you identify with? Who does God identify you with? He identifies you with his beloved son. You are who God says you are in Christ, a beloved child of God. We see this in Peter's restoration. If you're a Christian, in Christ, you're united. God looks upon you with the very love and pleasure and delight and joy that he looks upon the Son. He doesn't look back at this crucifixion week and think you're like them. He looks back and says, look at the blood of my Son. The blood is not just on your hands. It's covered all of you. You're washed clean. And this is your standing before a holy and righteous God. If you're not a Christian, This is why we so plead with you to turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Trust in him. And his account is credited to you and your sinful account accredited to him. Christian, you are who you say or who God says you are, beloved child of God. Let me close with these lyrics from a song called Perfect Love by Shailen. Look, when we lived as God's opponents, He gave his only son for atonement. So we've got to see he can't possibly love us more than he does this moment. In love, he justified us. In love, he sanctifies us. So we don't have to jump through hoops to try to make him like us. One thing we truly cannot fathom, we're stunned. The father loves us with the very love he has for his son. Let's close in prayer. Father.